Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the life cycles of stuff. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. Today, I have a super short topic. It is about ornamental garden hermits. So this is a short and fun topic from the land, from the files of crazy ass things that the uber rich did. <laughs> there, This is a very large file, but this is just one little sheet of paper in it. <laughs> <laughs> so in the mid 18th to the mid 19th centuries, it was a symbol of very high class if you had yourself a garden hermit. And I'm not talking about like a little statue of a beardy no man that came out of Bavaria. I'm talking about like an actual living, breathing human being person to be a hermit to live in your garden. So it was hip to have a squatter. It was hip to have a squatter in your garden to live <laughs> in a little hermitage. Okay. Yeah, so at the time, and we're talking like mid-18th to mid-19th centuries, like I, like I said. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a eh, longish period of time, not too long. So at the time, grottos and hermitages were part of a trend of garden de- decor for the ultra-wealthy. And the reason for this is that, like, I guess lords and ladies would have on their land, they would find, like, this old hermitage, and they'd be like, oh, this is amazing. There's this hermitage. And so the other ultra-wealthy people wanted to be like, I want to have a hermitage, too. So, so grottos and hermitages were built on the land of the uber wealthy and it was seen as a lovely place for reflection and prayer and all the more better and all the more chic if you had an actual hermit man living there. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry. This is just really funny. (laughs) It's really funny. So... There are advertisements from this era which can be seen, and there's one in particular that I came across from 1797. Um, It requested someone who would live on this hermitage on this property, and the stipulations were it was for a year. They could not cut their nails. They could not cut their hair. They could not wash their clothes. Oh, God. Yeah. So they had to be like this hermity dirty hermity person like living on this hermitage in their land in exchange for this healthy stipend and depending on the landowner it it changes what they wanted from the hermit sometimes the hermit was requested to recite poetry Maybe they were supposed to give counsel to people who were guests on the land. Maybe they were supposed to make wise pronouncements. Maybe they were supposed to never speak and only read books and burn candles. (laughs) It just depends on the landowner what they wanted. But they were definitely there to play the part of the hermit. So apparently, though, I mean, this job wasn't that great because you had to basically, like, not talk to anyone or recite poetry for wealthy people. Um, so hermits could be in short supply. 
you might not be able to find yourself a hermit. So some families would have the suggestion of a hermit in their grotto or their hermitage. They like burn candles. They leave books out to make it look like there was a hermit studying. <laughs> I read one account of a family that had an actual like automaton to look like a hermit so that it looked like there's a hermit like moving around in there. I'm just thinking of the scene in Home Alone where, where <laughs> Kevin McAllister makes a fake birthday for or Christmas party. And it's just like a cardboard cutout of Michael Jordan on a train and things like that. <laughs> so I'm just envisioning a cardboard cutout of a dirty old hermit. <laughs> right? <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. No, I think it's great because it's it's pretty much that. Because they would also have mannequins or statues to look like a hermit to be in their garden. Like, it was just like, they just wanted a dirty old man in their, <laughs> on their property. Well, and that's just the type of thing where you see it out of the corner of your eye and you jump every time. Like, if you have yeah. a statue, like a mannequin in your house or something, I would jump and scream when I would see <laughs> my dress form out of the corner of my eye for quite a while. <laughs> I had to move it because I kept, I kept scaring myself with it. <laughs> So, where did these hermits go? Well, you might think that the reason we have garden gnomes is related to garden hermits. That's not true. They're not related. So, the trend lasted in mostly England. This was mostly popular in the UK till about the 1830s. And then new designs and different garden architecture took over, plus industrialism started and having a hermit that lived in your yard became regarded as gauche and tacky. <laughs> Shocking. Um, so, and also neoclassical architecture kind of took over at this time too. And it had more of a... Uh, People wanted more simple, less ostentatious, ostentatious style. So it became less likely that people wanted grottos and hermitages and dirty old hermits in their yard. They didn't want a pet dude hanging out. They didn't want a pet dude in their yard. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that's where they went. The hermits... They did something else. I don't know what they did. <laughs> I mean, it'd they, be a, they went off. It'd be a good gig for like a traveling actor, I guess. Yeah, but sometimes the family wanted them for like years. They were like, well, you have to live here for a year. Or you have to live here for a stipulated period mm -hmm. of time. And there were famous hermits, like there were famous hermits and people were trying to catch that thunder. They were like, I want my own famous hermit. <laughs> it turns out maybe, you know, the town drunk that just wants to get get a few extra, like have a stipend just to live in a, like a, a shack on your property. Mm -hmm. Maybe not the best counsel. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he got a steady gig after being the town drunk, so he, he's 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 onto something. He's on his way up. Uh, I can I can respect that. This is the most human thing I've ever heard of. This is such a like 
thing that you just know, I'm not surprised people did it. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it's hilarious. It it is hilarious and it just makes me laugh. Like the advertisement just made me laugh. And then there was one account of one hermit. He was hired to live on these people's property and he wasn't supposed to talk to anyone and they thought it was going really well until they realized that like every day at a certain time he would like just go up to the pub to have a to have a beer. Like <laughs> just Routine is important in the <laughs> life of a religious adherent. It is. It matters. <laughs> Truth. <laughs> Truth, in fact. So what are you going to cover? I am going to cover hermit adjacent, a hermit adjacent topic. I love it. Uh, where did anchorites go? Oh, interesting. So what is an anchorite? Do you know? I have no idea. It is a person. Uh, and there were as many as a four to one ratio of women to men in European history who anchored themselves to a church building. They typically stayed in what was called an anchor hold or a cell. And it was a small stone wall room, stone walled room that was adjacent to a church. And this is typically a Catholic institution, although similar levels of stationary devotion have existed and probably still exist in plenty of other religious movements. So I'm not trying to say that like, Catholics are the only ones who've ever done it. It's just very specifically as an anchorite in the early and high middle ages, very much a Catholic thing. So according to some early church sources, the inspiration of even doing this was Egyptian anchorites. And that's how they got the name. And these anchorites would walk into the desert to live in privation and contemplation. But there wasn't a lot of respect, I guess, in the church for the sort of lack of interaction that these Egyptian anchorites would have with people. The sort of So what was retained in the Catholic Church was the contemplation. But anchorites were much more likely to provide some form of service while they were in their cell, such as writing, answering spiritual questions, possibly doing some chores like sewing or whatever, done all in their anchor hold. They would literally be walled into these rooms sometimes there would be a door to exit but sometimes they would just be sealed in uh not sealed fully like cask of amontillado by edgar Allan poe uh but they had they had windows so they could get food and things but in the the earliest <laughs> christian anchorites were recorded in the year three or the third century not the year three the year, third century in Gaza, Palestine, Israel, etc. And then there are some recorded by the Venerable Bede in the 7th century. So we're going from the Middle East, the sort of cradle of a lot of world religions, but Christianity included, all the way to it being spread into Europe over the course of four centuries. And the, the recording by the Venerable Bede actually mentioned that the anchorite was being consulted on different spiritual and church issues. So they weren't just people who, they weren't just hermits. Huh. So let's talk about hermit versus anchorite versus cenobite versus uh, lavrite versus a, a monk or a, a nun. So a hermit, similar to Sarah's garden hermits, uh, Although these folks are Catholic, and I would bet your garden hermits were Anglican or nothing, 
like not, like non theistic, not atheistic, but like yeah, in England they would have been Anglican, not devo- devotees of much of anything except going to the pub, depending on where they got picked up, or maybe it was a way to secretly be Catholic. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, hermit lives alone in contemplation, not part of any community, religious or otherwise, uh, and can move around. So can hang out in their little grottos and go to a different grotto or stay in that grotto and not talk to anyone and like maybe beg for some food. So a Cenobite or a Cenobitic community are where community living is emphasized. It's like monks in a monastery or nuns in a cloister. Levritic, this is mostly in like Eastern Orthodox religious groups. Uh, Hermit cells clustered in a group. So it's it's like half hermit, half Cenobite, with a church and possibly a refectory shared a shared space. So it's kind of like the um like the outdoor mall. <laughs> <laughs> so so like a hermit is like a standalone store. Cenobites are like a shopping mall, and Levitic <laughs> practitioners are like the outdoor mall, or like a strip mall. <laughs> a strip mall of hermits. And then the anchorite, I guess, would be like a kiosk. So. <laughs> to stretch this horrible analogy. It's a hermit kiosk. <laughs> it is. So the anchorite was technically separated from any physical community by walls, but an integral they were considered an integral part of a religious community. They tended to have servants specifically just to bring them food, but also they also often had students. And then there were also, they'd participate in mass. They wouldn't typically recite mass, but they would watch it. It was often a daily thing that they would watch because if you're a religious adherent, like a monk or an anchorite or something like that, you have more uh, like formal prayer setups than just going to mass on Sunday. And... They were also considered like they'd live in their anchor hold for the rest of their lives. That was considered a critical component of being an anchorite is you were you were in it to win it. You were there until you were done. <laughs> wow. So this is an uh, what was is considered in the church an other form of consecrated life. And I'm doing air quotes. Uh, um, it's a more rigid and rigorous way to mimic the what was the presumed to be the piety of Christ. Uh, and it was technically something of an independent actor in the church as an anchorite. You were only especially subject to the direction of a bishop. And you were considered fairly important, important enough to be fed and provided with, like, not interesting clothes, but clean clothes and have your waists taken out for you and a new bucket provided, things like that. So you were you were provided with a lot of resources for someone who was mostly spending their time praying. So they were considered very religiously important. Like that level of devotion was respected in the church. Uh, writings from anchorites have become major influence, influencers of church doctrine. And then anchorites also influenced major figures in the church. So uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Hildegard of Bingen. Yep. She was... I, I believe how it worked out because there's sort of two different ways this worked out. Either she was, she was their, her family's 10th child. Hildegard of Bingen was. And so she was either tithed to the church 
because a tithe is 10% of your earnings. So she was just like given over to the church by her family. Or she became sort of a student of this woman named, it would probably be Yuta, J-U-T-T-A. Sarah might actually know how to properly pronounce that. It'd be Yuta. Yeah, okay, great. Uh, So Yuta was an older woman who was also very religious. And she and Hildegard were enclosed in the same... I should have gotten more detail about this. I mean, you can find a lot about Hildegard of Bingen. She wrote so much that she's she's a hell of a composer, by the way. Uh, you can find a lot of her uh, musical works. That's how I first heard of her. Uh, and she has a lot of mystic writing. She had visions her whole life. She's a really interesting woman. Yeah, but- Hildegard's pretty amazing. She's really interesting to read about. I had no, mm-hmm. she was an anchorite? No, so Yuta was. Oh, okay. So Yuta became an anchorite, and Hildegard was one of her servants, essentially. And she would help with either recording what Yuta would say in her in terms of the um, sort of religious contemplation, and Yuta would teach her about church doctrine and the Bible and things like that. So they had a student-mentor relationship as well as a servant-anchorite re- relationship. And then Hildegard of Bingen became an extraordinarily important figure in Germanic Catholic church right. activities. So she really is a good composer, too. I, I love her music, which is probably pretty strange. It's it's essentially Gregorian chants, as it were. But <laughs> it's very pretty, though. It's beautiful. I love that music. So Anchorite, as a concept and a sort of popular thing to do... So it solidified in the early and high Middle Ages, so 10th to 16th century. Prior to that, there may it was more of a nebulous concept. There were anchorites, but it was they they could be handled as different forms of being a hermit or whatever. But it became sort of more rigorously defined, and it was particularly common in England, Ireland, and the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, a lot of anchorites were actually considered spiritually dead. They had the office of the dead recited as they were enclosed. And their physical bodies lived while their souls sort of endeavored toward heaven. So that's part of where they went. They were considered the living dead. And that was part of why the sort of rigorous life of praying all day, eating a little bit, doing some teaching and some talking, but mostly just praying all day, was considered not abnormal because they were considered already dead. And it was also considered a mortal sin to leave your anchor hold. And you'd be condemned. A mortal sin is a very like, it's, it's a bad one. (laughs) It's, it's a condemned to hell one. And though it did happen occasionally without major repercussion, there was actually a story about an anchorite that left her anchor hold and then was re-enclosed a while later. So, you know, how rigorous different official officials were about <laughs> enforcing, oh, this is a mortal sin. I don't, who knows? There's like ven- venial sins and mortal sins, right? Yes, and venial ones are... They're like misdemeanors. Yeah, it's like misdemeanor versus felony. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> to stretch to stretch all these analogies <laughs> so uh, one place that anchorites went is they were actually killed in their 
anchor holds by pirates or invaders or people who were uh, fighting wars, regional wars, international wars, that there were anchorites who were burnt in their cells. Oh, how awful. Yeah, I mean, you'd basically be cooked in an oven and it doesn't sound fun, but I mean, they probably, a, a lot of people sort of embrace martyrdom. So, and while we have anchorites and a lot of women who are anchorites were called anchoresses, but we have a lot of recorded ones, but there are a lot of them that either their name wasn't recorded or whether they were a man or a woman wasn't recorded. And I think a lot of that is due to the sort of corporeal nature of these people not being considered particularly important. It was important to stay alive to continue the process of contemplation and prayer, but it was not considered particularly important for them to be cons- like treated as a human with like needs of physical touch or fun or <laughs> I don't, I, you know sunshine. So, so where did anchorites go? During their typical day. So you've been enclosed. The bishop has determined you are sort of said the the last rites. You're spiritually dead. Uh, So you would stay in your cell all day and all night. Very occasionally they had attached small gardens or more than one room. And those were probably the the like highfalutin churches. Like the nice (laughs) ones. And then some anchorites were able or allowed to move in into the church and then back into their anchor hold. None of these were particularly common. So it was typically you were you were in your cell. You might have a door, but you were in your cell. Each cell typically had three windows. One allowed in light from outside, but it typically had a sheet or a film over it. So you couldn't like take in the scenery. It was just to provide light. And it's probably a way to make sure that you didn't have to like use candles as often because candles are expensive. And then one window allowed the helpers of the anchorite to provide the anchorite with food and to remove their waste or to get sort of discussions from students and things like that. And then the third window, which was sometimes called a squint, which I think is cute. Uh, the anchorite would receive the Eucharist. They would be a mass. The Eucharist is the bread that Catholics get and the wine uh, during mass. And they would also speak to petitioners. So people who had spiritual questions, who were looking for guidance, uh, would talk to the anchorite typically through a squint. And so we know from a document from the 13th century called the Ancrene Vis. I'm assuming. Visa? W-I-S-S-E? It was probably Germanic. Yeah. Uh, Specifically written for anchoresses, but I'm I'm sure that dudes were expected to do similar stuff. uh, On how to best spend their days to maximize pious contemplation without sliding into pridefulness over how, uh, you know, how pious you're being or personal neglect. So it was a very rigorous and the, the I, I read a blog and that I, I basically got the rest of this sort of discussion of what they do during the day from this person who uh, has read that document 
they said six times and it's written in old English. Like I was like, well, maybe if they read it, I should read it. And I was like, mm, nope, I'm not going <laughs> to read this. And no. <laughs> uh, so they have read it several times and they decided to spend a day because they've been studying early Christianity and, and middle ages. And I, I, I've cited them as a source for sure, but I don't remember their name. <laughs> Sorry. Sort of they, they, detail what is discussed by the author in each chapter and it includes things like not being how to how to avoid being neglectful of yourself while also being properly like rigorous so anyway this person's day began at 3 30 in the morning and oh. as they yeah i was out by i was out in the first the first round <laughs> <laughs> i'm not waking up at 3 30 unless my kid is screaming for help uh so when you when you, an anchorite would dress and ready themselves for the day, they would have specific prayers they were supposed to say. And I don't know if they were required to do it out loud or to themselves. It probably varied. And then the formal prayers, the formal prayer hours began at sunrise, the first hour of the daily office of prayer. And then throughout the morning, they would do a mixture of formal prayers and then also some work of contemplating the questions they'd been asked or uh, sort of sort of like just sort of personal religious contemplation so it always had sort of an ecclesiastical flavor although I would bet they were you know occasionally handed a shirt to him or whatever but uh, different actions accompanied the prayer of the morning this person was instructed by the the document to do signs of the cross or a kneeling rising raising their hands and it reminds me of all the actions that one would take during a catholic mass and just incorporated even further into uh, the prayer that we would do throughout the morning and then prior to lunch the uh, anchorite would hear mass and presumably it would be a daily thing and then receive the eucharist and then there would be a contemplative prayer after the mass based on the contents of the mass. So weekly masses in the Catholic church tend to have specific readings and homily subjects. So Catholic mass looks very similar worldwide on each Sunday. You can actually get a little booklet of like what you're supposed to be reading and things like that. Uh, so, and this is just a personal guess that it would be the type of thing that it would be similar for each anchorite. Uh, the the prayer would be specific to each mass and right. there would there would be sort of some structure to what they were responding to that's just a guess though i am not a 12th century uh catholic anchorite thank heavens anyway so yeah but i think you and i haven't gone to catholic school and raised catholic like we have a better understanding of like how they're these people were probably like doing their sitting and standing and like the prayers they were saying. Yeah, that's true. If yeah. you haven't been to Catholic mass every Sunday of your entire life or <laughs> went to Catholic school, I didn't go to Catholic school, but you did Sarah, right? Oh, I thought you went to Catholic school, but yeah, no. uh, I did go to Catholic school. Yes. My mom did. And so we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh so it it's i'm not gonna call it athletic but it is 
there is a physical component as well as a uh, mental and vocal component. So after the sort of responsory prayers, there would be lunch. And then it was recommended that the anchorite take a nap. <laughs> well, they got up at 3.30, I hope so. Yeah. And then this person did take a nap. Uh, and then they completed the remaining hours of the daily office of prayer. And they interspersed it with their personal work. And then they wrapped up their day by around 7-ish p.m. and went to sleep. So they get a decent night's sleep. Once you get used to that schedule, you could probably do it if nobody's bugging you after 7 p.m. Although there were there were what's called vespers, which are like late night prayers. And I, I wonder how that plays in or if, if the anchor anchoresses and anchorites were not bothered uh, about vespers because they spent the rest of their day praying anyway. What time were vespers, though? I had always thought vespers were at sunset. Maybe they are. Which is still, for here, it would be like 8 o'clock. I'm, I'm Googling it. So there's a midday prayer at noon, uh, 3 p.m., Vespers, 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. Yeah, you're right. Okay, so they would say Vespers and then go to bed. I'm learning stuff. So th <laughs> this is a quote from A Day in the Life of an Anchorite so from the blog. Let me find this person's name. I feel bad that I don't remember it. Because they did a, they were very rigorous and they wrote a very nice post and I will certainly cite them. Alicia Smith. She was working toward, in, in 2017, she was working for a, toward a doctor of philosophy and English literature at the Queen's College, University of Oxford. Wow. Okay. And you can find her on Twitter and blogs of the Thinking Faith Network. Anyway. Uh, she wrote, the most striking aspect of practicing the routine in real time, however, was how prayer dominated the shape of the day. And it was never more than 90 minutes or so without praying. And so, although I read and worked during the free periods, the spiritual posture of prayer, placing myself before God, trying to shape myself to the prescribed words, was much more continual part of my thinking than I'm used to. And I really appreciate her insight here because you wouldn't think, of, like, okay, I'll say some prayers. I'll say, I don't know, if you've never tried to say, like, a full rosary. Oh, holy moly. It is, it is an investment in your time. Yes, it is. And that alone is a very, it's, I'm not going to call it mindless, but it is a repetitive prayer activity of saying the Our Father, uh, the uh, Hail Mary, and then a few other prayers at different times. And you use the right. rosary to go through and keep track so you don't lose track and have to start over. But uh, that's a very sort of rote prayer activity and the anchorite would do so much more than that it would probably be a mix of just like mind numbing and exhausting and you'd probably put yourself into trances and I honestly just keep thinking of living in this stone room and you would just be cold all the time because the floor would probably be about 55 degrees Fahrenheit so your feet are always cold but then if it's a hot day your your cell is sweltering and then if it's a cold day, freezing. You don't have a fire in there. You probably have blankets, but it's just, it's, it's almost unimaginable the intensity of the experience. Yeah. I, I would not want to do it. No, me either. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been at home for what, like 
I don't know, 50 days now, 40 days. Probably. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, and I can go to the grocery store and go out into my garden. And I have a relatively large house. And I'm still like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. Every day looks the same. And I am not being required to do uh, all the orders of the hours of the day in terms of like praying at 6 a.m., and 9 a.m. and noon and 3 p.m. and 6 or 7 p.m. plus other personal contemplative prayer and a Catholic mass and (laughs) every day. Well, at least it fills your day. It does. (laughs) And that's why I'm thinking and part of why I mentioned like putting yourself in a trance and things like that is because Hildegard of Bingen was considered a mystic on top of being a a Mm -hmm. Catholic religious figure, which is it feels like those things should be considered contradictory. But because a lot of her visions were with regard to God, it was considered more acceptable. And she was also, uh, I believe, a ninth or 10th century figure, not so much a witch hunt era figure. So it may have been different in terms of the acceptability of having visions, but that also jives with, so where did the anchorite concept go? It's still part of like Catholic dogma. It's still considered a thing in Catholicism. And it was discussed like say, during the Vatican one Vatican two era, it was discussed as a, it was kept as a concept as part of Catholicism. And I should, that would be a good episode. Where did Vatican one go? (laughs) If you're not Catholic, don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So there are still some anchorite type devotees, but the rigidity of the life is often not replicated. And it's often that almost kind of like Sarah's, Uh, garden hermits was more of a caretaker position or a greeter for visitors but to have someone sort of like in the church all the time so not i'm not going to call it a tourist attraction because i feel like that's disrespectful to someone who's doing like a full job they're trying to be an interpreter for uh, people visiting why are there not many anchorites now because during the 16th century the creation of the anglican church and resulting religious schisms plus religious strife between the rising of Protestantism versus the existing Catholicism resulted in huge numbers of Catholic buildings being destroyed. And supporting and utilizing the spiritual guidance of an anchorite just wasn't a top priority anymore. Like they, Nobody had time to feed this one guy or gal in a room while they prayed all day when they were trying to not get, you know, beheaded. <laughs> That practice fell out of favor, and obviously Catholicism is still a thing, and there are still monks and nuns and priests, uh, so it's not gone. And in fact, Julia Crata, a.k.a. the Nazarena of Jesus, lived in an anchor hold in Rome. She was from America, but she lived in an anchor hold in Rome from 1960 to 1990, and she died in 1990 as an anchoress. Wow. So there are still occasionally people who are interested in this level of devotion that is not because a lot of nuns in particular, I don't know that there are a ton of monks anymore. Anyway, they have a sort of social existence and a a, um, service to. Yeah. They're more like social workers now, honestly. Yeah. In a lot of ways and, and community organizers and things like that. So, 
and we can, I mean, I don't mean to, by the way, I've been talking a lot about the Catholic Church. I don't mean to gloss over any of the enduring problems the Catholic Church has caused. So I'm just looking at an interesting facet of it that has gone away and why. Just, I don't want to like act like, oh, the Catholic Church, so quaint, he he. I'm not trying to sanitize anything. No. I'm just trying to make the point that there was an interesting level of devotion specifically codified in the Catholic Church that is still occasionally practiced, but not so much anymore. Except for like people who do it for a day and are like, wow, that was interesting. And then they never do it again. <laughs> That's where anchorites went. I So I knew what anchorites were, but I didn't know that's what they were called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had they, heard them called something else, and I don't, I don't know what I, I, the name escapes me right now. Well, and there may be other linguistic uses of the name, because um, it's kind of like a hermit, but that's part of a community, so it's like an in between. And they're they're mentioned in some. I swear there is an anchorite in. Le Miserable, but I did not go back through that book and find it because it is a long book and I did not feel like it. <laughs> but I swear there is one. I and don't remember. I find that story so depressing and horrible that I have blocked a lot of it out. I've never seen the musical. I'm not I interested have, in yeah. it. The book is exhausting and I cannot like emotionally exhausting, physically exhausting. It's an insanely long book. It's like it, 800 pages, right? Yes. And it's hard to find an unabridged version because so many editors and printers are like, we're not printing this part about how much uh, Victor Hugo liked Paris. I don't care. It's got nothing to do with the story. <laughs> so it's genuinely difficult to find an unabridged copy nowadays. It's at least in English. But I swear there's an anchorite in there. <laughs> there probably is. <laughs> <laughs> That's where it went. Religious wars. Uh, they were considered spiritually uh, part of the world of the dead, not part of the world of the living. Uh, they, Some of their writings were codified into the Catholic Church. And some of them were just killed in their cells by people destroying the church. Because they were, like, shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah. Unfortunately. And very occasionally some of them left, but that was not common. I mean, what's your, like, what's, I know they didn't have resumes, but (laughs) (laughs) what job are you going to get after that? Like, oh, where have you been for the last 10 years? Well, it's a funny story, so. (laughs) So I decided to stay in this room and only pray for, like, 10 years and the bishop was totally cool with it, but I got really bored and decided to leave. <laughs> I needed to grow as a person. <laughs> See the world. There you go. <laughs> Eat, pray, love. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Anchorites. It's a really interesting concept, and I would prefer not to. <laughs> yeah, I can't say it's something I would ever, ever want to do. I just have so many other things I would rather do. My feet get cold thinking about it. Like, I literally get cold feet thinking about it. I don't want to have my feet be that cold for a full day, let alone a full life. And they really didn't have a fire at, like, a fireplace? I don't think so. It never mentioned them. 
Hmm. You would think that they would have some kind of like little hearth or something. I don't know. I mean, if the walls are thick enough and you've got like blankets, it never mentioned fireplaces or chimneys. It really like all, all the reading I did, all the different never mentioned them. I'm sure some of them had them. It was probably considered, you know, to build character. So after all of this social distancing and isolation, how many of us can consider ourselves hermits now? Uh, well hermits can move about freely so I don't know (laughs) oh that's true I didn't think about that but we aren't part of communities so I think we're I think we're like lavrites the ones that are in the little hermitages and then we all can share the grocery store but then scurry back to our hermitages scurry scurry back to our hermitages so that's where we are (laughs) that's where we are (laughs) So we're all Lavrites. We, uh, I'm, I'm sure we are not meeting the uh, religious devotion component. Some people probably are, but I'm not. Um, it depends on what religion. Maybe I am. I don't know. <laughs> I doubt it, though. Yeah. Unless watching kids TV is, you know, some form of piety, then I'm not making it. But that's yeah, okay. unless playing Animal Crossing is <laughs> like is the sign of my piety then no <laughs> I mean, maybe who knows <laughs> well cool that was awesome i love mm-hmm. our hermit episode during the the time of social distancing yeah it's, it's awesome. our it's our isolation episode that's what i'm gonna isolation call it Isolation episode nice isolation by choice by hook or by crook <laughs> yeah all these people are isolating by choice so that we're talking about I mean, maybe some out of necessity, but... Yeah, that's true. You can find us on wheredoesapodcast.com. We're on social media, on Twitter, and on Instagram. Find us there. We also have a Patreon, so totally support us. Help us pay the bills. And you can find that on wheredoesapodcast.com, our website. And join. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.